to the rear of my tent. When the pony was ready, I stood at his head, prepared to mount and dash out, as soon as the dog should again lift up his voice. Pornick, by the way, had not been out of his pickets for a couple of days. The night air was crisp and chilly, and I was armed with a specially long and sharp pair of persuaders with which I had been rousing a sluggish cob that afternoon. You will easily believe, then, that when he was let go, he went quickly. In one moment, for the brute bolted as straight as a die, the tent was left far behind, and we were flying over the smooth, sandy soil at racing speed. In another, we had passed the wretched dog, and I had almost forgotten why it was that I had taken horse and hogspear. The delirium of fever and the excitement of rapid motion through the air must have taken away the remnant of my senses. I have a faint recollection of standing upright in my stirrups and of brandishing my hogspear at the great white moon that looked down so calmly on my mad gallop, and of shouting challenges to the camel-thorn bushes as they whizzed past. Once or twice, I believe, I swayed forward on Pornick's neck and literally hung on by my spurs, as the marks next morning showed. The wretched beast went forward like a thing possessed over what seemed to be a limitless expanse of moonlit sand. Next, I remember, the ground rose suddenly in front of us, and as we topped the ascent, I saw the waters of the Sutlej shining like a silver bar below. Then Pornick blundered heavily on his nose, and we rolled together down some unseen slope. I must have lost consciousness, for when I recovered I was lying on my stomach in a heap of soft white sand, and the dawn was beginning to break dimly over the edge of the slope down which I had fallen. As the light grew stronger, I saw I was at the bottom of a horseshoe-shaped crater of sand, opening on one side, directly onto the shoals of the Sutlej. My fever had altogether left me, and with the exception of a slight dizziness in the head, I felt no bad effects from the fall overnight. Pornick, who was standing a few yards away, was naturally a good deal exhausted, but had not hurt himself in the least. His saddle, a favourite polo one, was much knocked about, and had been twisted under his belly. It took me some time to put him to rights, and in the meantime I had ample opportunities of observing the spot into which I had so foolishly dropped. At the risk of being considered tedious, I must describe it at length, inasmuch as an accurate mental picture of its peculiarities will be of material assistance in enabling the reader to understand what follows. Imagine, then, as I have said before, a horseshoe-shaped crater of sand with steeply graded sand walls about thirty-five feet high. The slope, I fancy, must have been about sixty-five degrees. This crater enclosed a level piece of ground about fifty yards long by thirty at its broadest part, with a rude well in the centre. Round the bottom of the crater, about three feet from the level of the ground proper, ran a series of eighty-three semicircular, ovoid, square and multilateral holes, all about three feet at the mouth. Each hole on inspection showed that it was carefully shored internally with driftwood and bamboos, and over the mouth a wooden drip-board projected, like the peak of a jockey's cap, for two feet. 
No sign of life was visible in these tunnels, but a most sickening stench pervaded the entire amphitheatre, a stench fouler than any which my wanderings in Indian villages have introduced me to. Having remounted Pornick, who was as anxious as I to get back to camp, I rode round the base of the horseshoe to find some place whence an exit would be practicable. The inhabitants, whoever they might be, had not thought fit to put in an appearance, so I was left to my own devices. My first attempt to rush Pornick up the steep sandbanks showed me that I had fallen into a trap exactly on the same model as that which the ant lion sets for its prey. At each step, the shifting sand poured down from above in tons and rattled on the drip boards of the holes like small shot. A couple of ineffectual charges sent us both rolling down to the bottom, half choked with the torrents of sand, and I was constrained to turn my attention to the river bank. Here everything seemed easy enough. The sandhills ran down to the river edge, it is true, but there were plenty of shoals and shallows across which I could gallop Pornick and find my way back to terra firma by turning sharply to the right or the left. As I led Pornick over the sands, I was startled by the faint pop of a rifle across the river, and at the same moment a bullet dropped with a sharp whit close to Pornick's head. There was no mistaking the nature of the missile, a regulation Martini Henry picket. About five hundred yards away a country boat was anchored in midstream, and a jet of smoke drifting away from its bowels in the still morning air showed me whence the delicate attention had come. Was ever a respectable gentleman in such an impasse? The treacherous sand-slope allowed no escape from a spot which I had visited most involuntarily, and a promenade on the river frontage was the signal for a bombardment from some insane native in a boat. I'm afraid that I lost my temper very much indeed." Another bullet reminded me that I had better save my breath to cool my porridge, and I retreated hastily up the sands and back to the horseshoe, where I saw that the noise of the rifle had drawn sixty-five human beings from the badger-holes, which I had up till that point supposed to be untenanted. I found myself in the midst of a crowd of spectators, about forty men, twenty women, and one child who could not have been more than five years old. They were all scantily clothed in that salmon-coloured cloth which one associates with Hindu mendicants, and, at first sight, gave me the impression of a band of loathsome fakirs. The filth and repulsiveness of the assembly were beyond all description, and I shuddered to think what their life in the badger-holes must be. Even in these days, when local self-government has destroyed the great part of a native's respect for a sahib, I have been accustomed to a certain amount of civility from my inferiors, and on approaching the crowd naturally expected that there would be some recognition of my presence. As a matter of fact, there was, but it was by no means what I had looked for. The ragged crew actually laughed at me. Such laughter I hope I may never hear again. They cackled, yelled, whistled, and howled as I walked into their midst, some of them literally throwing themselves down on the ground in convulsions of unholy mirth. In a moment I had let go Pornick's head, and 
irritated beyond expression at the morning's adventure, commenced cuffing those nearest to me with all the force I could. The wretches dropped under my blows like ninepins, and the laughter gave place to wails for mercy, while those yet untouched clasped me round the knees, imploring me in all sorts of uncouth tongues to spare them. In the tumult, and just when I was feeling very much ashamed of myself for having thus easily given way to my temper, a thin, high voice murmured in English from behind my shoulder, "'Sahib! Sahib! Do you not know me? Sahib, it is Ganga Das, the telegraph master!' I spun round quickly and faced the speaker. "'Ganga Das!' I have, of course, no hesitation in mentioning the man's real name. I had known four years before as a Deccani Brahmin lent by the Punjab government to one of the Khalsia states. He was in charge of a branch telegraph office there, and when I had last met him was a jovial, full-stomached, portly government servant with a marvellous capacity for making bad puns in English a peculiarity which made me remember him long after I had forgotten his services to me in his official capacity. It is seldom that a Hindu makes English puns. Now, however, the man was changed beyond all recognition. Cast mark, stomach, slate-coloured continuations, and unctuous speech were all gone. I looked at a withered skeleton, turbanless and almost naked, with long matted hair and deep-set codfish eyes. But for a crescent-shaped scar on the left cheek, the result of an accident for which I was responsible, I should never have known him. But it was indubitably Gunga Das, and, for this I was thankful, an English-speaking native who might at least tell me the meaning of all that I had gone through that day. The crowd retreated to some distance as I turned towards the miserable figure and ordered him to show me some method of escaping from the crater. He held...